Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to part four of my grandfather's journey through World War II. It is July 25th, 1944, and the 461st bomber group was just turned away before reaching their target for the first time in the war. The 461st sent four squadrons, totaling 26 planes, and only eight returned to base after this mission. 113 officers and enlisted men from the 461st were either killed in action or missing in action. Early in 1945, more than 75,000 liberators had been dispatched by the 2nd Division, dropped 160,000 tons of bombs on enemy-held territory. Nearly 1,000 liberators were missing in action from the close to 400 missions they had flown, and with them, about 10,000 men. 1,050 enemy fighters had been knocked from the sky by the 50 caliber guns of the big bombers, and another 256 were probably destroyed. The damage to the enemy that had been done on the ground cannot be reckoned, but would probably be counted in billions of dollars and man hours. Bob's 461st Bomber Group suffered the most on the Lintz Raid, and that was to be expected. Not the severity of the losses, but it's that the 461st was in the middle of the three groups that were in the raid. And this is usually how it went, right? The first group leads the raid. They usually make it through okay. The 484th Division led the mission, and 36 out of their 36 planes returned to base without incident. The lead group typically had the easier time going over the target because it'll be their group that the Germans are using to figure out their direction, altitude, and speed to get all their anti-aircraft guns set up. So the 484th goes right through no trouble, drops their bombs right over the target. Unfortunately, next in line was the 461st, that's Bob's group, and they got to fly to the worst of it. So the flak is all dialed in on their altitude, and the 150 German fighters make their pass right up through the group below. And the third group bringing up the rear was the 451st, and all 22 of their planes made it back safely as well. So what a difference four minutes makes. The 461st group losses may have also been compounded by their inexperience and poor formation, allowing space for the German fighters to fly up between the planes. We left off with Bob jumping blindly into the flames, making it out of the bomb bay doors as his B-24 is hurtling towards the earth. So Bob jumps into the flames, and when he opens his eyes, he realizes he made it out of the plane, and he then pulls his ripcord. That was followed by a horrible jerk as the chute opened up, and now slowing down rapidly, he's now drifting down towards the ground under his deployed canopy. And it was a quick ride, because by the time Bob exited the plane, they were already at a very low altitude. So Bob's feet touched the ground, and he came to a stop while still standing up. So, yeah, I don't always jump out of a burning plane careening towards Earth, but when I do, I always land on my feet. As Bob is standing there on the side of a hill, he's definitely in shock, right? And But the training still kicks in. He realizes that the first order of business is to bury his parachute. The problem is his parachute's been blown into some bushes and it's all tangled up. So Bob says the heck with that. So he left his parachute there and he started heading up the hill that he was on. Now in hindsight, he thought he should have went down the hill looking back on it. But 
you know, spoiler alert, he lived. So I guess going up was the right call. Bob starts moving up the hill and he can see other parachutes in the sky, but there's no one close to him. There's no one else around. And out of nowhere, a little Austrian guy pops out from behind a tree. And Bob had quite a chuckle describing this man because he was the embodiment of an Austrian that would have been depicted in a cartoon or a movie. Right? He had the short pants with the suspenders, that hat with the little long feather in it, long sleeve shirt, some boots. But one accessory not in the cartoons was this rifle that was about, quote, 10 feet long. And that was probably an old flintlock rifle. So think of the rifles like in The Last of the Mohicans. Some of those old, old rifles were very, very long. So the little fellow with the big gun points the gun right at Bob and says, come on, gives him a wave in his direction and just turns his back and starts leading Bob down the hill. They came to a clearing and the man told Bob to lay down. So Bob got down on his belly and the man kind of searched around with him with his feet to see if he was armed. And when the little man was satisfied, he whistled and then soon German soldiers seemed to come out of everywhere. And not just the ordinary troops, SS troops. And the SS, the Schutzstaffel, or protection squads, was originally established as Adolf Hitler's personal bodyguard unit. It would later become both the elite guard of the Nazi Reich and Hitler's executive force prepared to carry out all security-related duties without regard for legal restraint. The SS was regarded as the Nazi party's elite unit. In keeping with the racial policies of Nazi Germany, in the early days, all SS officer candidates had to provide proof of Aryan ancestry back to 1750 and for the other ranks back to 1800. The SS wore special black uniforms, not only to intimidate the shit out of people, but there was also a traditional reason as well. Just like the Prussian kings and the emperor's lifeguard cavalry, they had worn black uniforms with skull and crossbone badges. So would the Führer's bodyguard unit. These SS uniforms were tailored to project authority and foster fear. Now, during Bob's entire adventure through World War II, he said, quote, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me. He said that twice. And running in to SS troops was one of them. Okay, Bob, can't wait to find out why parachuting into a squad of SS troops can be anything other than hell on earth. However, the good fortune Bob was referring to is that he parachuted into a bunch of SS troops that were on leave from the Eastern Front. So they were on r and I'm guessing the temperament of those SS troops is a little different when they're on the battlefield and you just killed one of their best friends versus sitting around kicking it in Austria, drinking some wine, smoking cigarettes, and chasing Austrian skirts. So the SS troops search him and start leading him down the hill. At this point, Bob is being swarmed by black flies, and he's losing his vision. Yeah, it turns out when the plane you're flying bursts into flames, and you're the last one out, and you have to jump through said flames just to get out of your plane, you're going to get burnt. And Bob's face head and arm were cooked and Bob's face is swelling up and his eyes are starting to be forced closed at this point. So as they pass his parachute, the Germans let Bob put part of his parachute over his head to keep the flies off of him. And I'm sure it was more to stop attracting the flies that were also biting the Germans, but it was a nice deed either way. And then they continue to lead Bob down the hill by one of the ropes that was still attached to the parachute. So it was like a little leash because Bob couldn't see. They let him down the hill that way. 
and the SS troops did not speak English. However, Bob said, you knew what they wanted. And the Germans led Bob past a farmhouse with some uh, U.S. government property in the front yard. Bob could make out a plane in the front yard, and several of the outhouse buildings around the farm were on fire. But at the time, Bob was not sure if that was his plane or not. But he did recall the woman who lived there was not happy with the American who just came from the plains that just torched her farm. So check this out. 56 years later, in the year 2000, Bob gets this letter. Dear Bob, I do know that it's not December when we usually exchange greetings, and this is not to announce my demise. But rather, it has come to share some interesting information about our July 25th, 1944 raid on Linz, Austria, which you may not have. I subscribe to the 461st publication, The Liberator. Perhaps you do too. In the June 1999 issue, I read a line which said, quote, For pinpoint information on the 25 July 1944 mission to Linz, we have the in-depth research of Austrian Karl Offenzeller. I immediately wrote him and he answered. We continued the corresponding via letter and email and made a date to meet at the Malthusen concentration camp on the afternoon of July 30th, 2000. Rita and I had signed up for a European tour from Prague to Rome with that concentration being a scheduled stop. You were not at this camp, I know, but several of the crew were. This was our second visit to this place of horror, the first occurring in July of 1990. We met Carl and his wife Maria, and we went with them to the actual spot where a large portion of the airplane we were flying crashed to the ground. It was about a 30-minute drive away from the camp in a town called Luftenburg. I have enclosed pictures taken from the day after the raid. Two very hot engines caused the burning of a house, barn, and surrounding farm buildings. That lot is still vacant today, covered in tall grass. The wing landed next to the house, which is still standing and occupied today. The propeller landed next to the burned farm. I asked about Glenn Myers, but neither Carl nor an eyewitness, which whom we talked to, could give us any definitive information. The eyewitness reported fragments of burned clothing found in the wreckage, and there had been a report of something falling into a pond about 400 feet away, but nothing was ever found in the water, so there was no definite proof about Glenn. I've lost contact with his brother, so I don't know if his body has, was ever reported found. The eyewitness we met still lives about 200 yards from the burned farm. In his basement, he has a small museum containing numerous items, including several pieces of our airplane. A report in German plus maps of the downed plane's location, along with other pieces of information given to me by Carl about the Linz raid are enclosed. I am also including a copy of a biography I wrote for my children and grandchildren. Last year, as commander of the American ex-prisoners of war in Washington, I encouraged all POWs in the state to record their experiences so that their immediate family and others would have valid information, so I had to do what I had advised others to accomplish. Our best to you and your family. Sincerely yours, Lauren. So that was a letter my grandfather received in the year 2000 from Lauren Swishin, his co-pilot, from the mission where he was shot down. So Lauren met 40 years later an eyewitness who lived on that farm where Bob's plane crashed. And he gave him pictures of the day after. So I have pictures from July 26, 1944 of the plane 
in front of the house, the propeller wedged in the guy's lawn, and all the burned buildings and farm stands. And the fucking farmer lady standing out posing with people for the picture. So how unbelievable is that? So Bob does walk by the remnants of his plane, but he did recall the woman who lived there was not happy with the American who just came from the planes in the sky that just torched her farm and bombed her country. Now, despite the anger, the woman put some butter and wrapped up Bob's wrist in a bandage. And despite the burns, Bob is feeling no pain at this point. So whether it's the adrenaline, the shock, or both, he can't recall feeling any pain, which is remarkable because his wrist that that woman just wrapped up had a hole burnt into it to the bone. You see, the B-24s had oxygen tanks, and they had copper lines that carried that oxygen all over the plane to various stations. And this is why these planes had a reputation to catch on fire. Remember, the bodies of the planes were just that thin sheet metal, and when bullets, rockets, or shrapnel would rip through them, they would usually puncture the O2 lines or tanks. Compressed oxygen is not flammable. However, if there's already a fire, and you add an abundant supply of pure oxygen, it can become massive and sometimes even explosive. In Bob's case, there was a puncture in the O2 line near his arm, and that acted like a blowtorch, burning a hole right in his wrist, all the way to the bone. Unbeknownst to him, because, you know, he's flying a burning plane with no tail section, one engine had been shut off, the other engine's on fire, while trying to get his crew out of the burning plane, and then having to parachute out himself. So, apparently, Bob was too busy to notice. So, the nice farmer wraps up the man's wrist, who was responsible for destroying her farm and bombing her country. Okay, so the next time you're online, and you feel yourself wanting to virtue signal some social justice bullshit or you get so mad at someone who thinks differently than you, just remember the Austrian farmer who had parts of her home destroyed, probably lost some animals, and still helped another human being despite all of that. I tell you, there are so many lessons here. Anyway, once wrapped up, Bob is led by those Germans to a castle and put in a dungeon. And when I say castle, it was a legit castle with a proper dungeon. Bob ended up in this small-ass room, probably four or five feet long by two or three feet wide, and there was a bench running along one side of it. Now, the bench was not long enough to lay down in or to get comfortable in any way. Like, back in the day, they knew how to make things uncomfortable. Bob just had to sit there, and the only way he could fully extend his legs was to stand up. Pure hell on earth. And the ceiling in the room was about 20 feet high and was open to the outdoors. So that was his only source of light during the day. And thankfully, it was July, so it wasn't too cold. And Bob spent a few days in this dungeon, and the Germans would slide him water to drink under the door, and he gave him a straw, because Bob could not eat anything due to the condition of his face, and his vision at this point was gone. The last thing Bob got to see was the cobblestone floor of a dungeon in an Austrian castle. So while there, Bob could hear German anti-aircraft guns, those 88s, and some machine gun fire in the distance. And after a while, the Germans led Bob across the street to a hospital of some sort, where a doctor, who could speak a little English, cleaned Bob up the best he could. He put some sort of paste all over his face, 
and then wrapped his entire head in, in brown paper, leaving a hole for his nose and his mouth. Then they brought Bob back to solitary. Bob sat in that solitary cell for a few days, and he said it started to get bad. He was doing his best to recite any poetry or music, anything he could remember, just to keep sane. And he started thinking of all the things he did wrong in his life. Solitary is a real mind F. Few days of that, then he goes back to the doctor, where he takes that paper wrapping off. And the doctor had some helpers this time, and they all held Bob down as he pulled the paper off his face and head. And along with the paper came the scabs that had formed. And the ones that didn't get pulled off by the paper, the doctor picked off Bob. And this hurt a lot. Bob remembered this. His whole face and head was burned. And he couldn't remember if he lost consciousness at any point, but he did remember it hurt like hell. And that doctor picked off every freaking scab on his face and his head. And Bob recalled the smell of burnt flesh and burnt hair. And the other reason why Bob considered this one of the best things to happen to him being caught by SS troops is because the SS troops were the best troops the Germans had. So the best troops got the best medical care. Bob was fortunate enough to land with the SS troops who happened to have the SS doctor who helped him. So the fact that these SS troops were on leave and they had their own doctors still with them is why Bob considered this to be one of the best things that's happened to him during the war. Because Bob was very lucky to be treated by such a skilled physician. So once the scabs are gone, the doctor powders up Bob's head and wraps it up in paper again. And then this time puts some sort of plaster on it to kind of stiffen it up. And the doctor then wrote in German on Bob's forehead, do not remove, and then signed his own name to it. And the doctor told Bob that no one will take it off. And again, I think because he was an SS doctor and he signed his name, people knew who he was, so they followed his order and no one took it off. Back to solitary for Bob for another couple days. And at that point, there was one other prisoner in the castle with Bob. After Bob was well enough to move, the other prisoner would lead Bob around in their journey to the interrogation center. Now, Bob couldn't see anything, right? So... He was being led around by this other prisoner. He could tell when he was at a train station or on a train, obviously, or in a police station. And when they were walking through the woods, that was very easy to know what you were doing when you can't see. So they took buses, trolleys, they walked, they took trains. They went all the way from Linz, Austria to Frankfurt, Germany, which is over 600 kilometers, which is about 372 miles. So for three days and two nights, a blind Bob holding on to another prisoner's shoulder makes this journey. And at night, they would always stay at police stations where they would just lock him in a cell for the night. After three days and two nights, they arrive at Frankfurt, Germany. Welcome to Frankfurt, Germany's interrogation camp. Now, the guy behind the desk stood up as Bob entered the room and says this, Welcome, Lieutenant Warren, and puts his hand out to shake his hand. So Bob says his name, rank, and serial number, and the interrogator just laughs, and then proceeds to tell Bob what he already knew. And this is what the interrogator already knew. He knew where Bob lived. He knew his address. He knew what high school Bob went to. He knew what sports he played. He knew what college he went to. He knew where he did basic training, where he did advanced training. He had a postcard already filled out with his parents' name and address on it, and he wanted Bob to sign it stating he was okay and being well taken care of. 
And if that wasn't crazy enough, he says, hey, by the way, we have your co-pilot and navigator here. And then he said their names, Lauren and Oren. And he's just staring at Bob, trying to get an acknowledgement that Bob knows who Lauren and Oren were, which obviously he got. Bob filled out this postcard, which I have in my hand, which is addressed to Mrs. Robert A. Warren, Weston, Mass., Webster Road, USA. And that was filled out by the people at the camp. And on the back, dated August 3rd, 1944. Dear Mother and Dad, I am okay. Feeling fine, but a prisoner of war. Red Cross helps us a great deal. Went down July 25th. Uninjured, will send new address soon as possible. Love, Bob. There's a lot of points in this story where I just can't even wrap my head around what he did and how he did it. I don't, I don't know how you know what to write your parents where you want to let them know you're okay. You can't be honest. You don't want them to know you're hurt, scared, or anything, so you just lie. It, it just, it's unbelievable. The interrogation didn't last long because most of Bob's crew was already interrogated by this interrogator, and he knew more than Bob did about most things. It was back to solitary where he was given a Red Cross parcel it's the first capture parcel. So when you get captured, you get your little, you know, prisoner of war starter kit because they take your clothes, they de-louse you, and then you get the Red Cross Summer 44 line, you know, a couple pairs of pants, shirts, underwear, socks. And after a few days, Bob is put on a train and sent to a POW camp in Barth, Germany. Gets on this train, there's a lot of prisoners and not a lot of guards because all the prisoners are handcuffed to the seat in front of him. The swelling's starting to go down. He's starting to see a little bit, so he can kind of look through that hole in his nose. So the train left Frankfurt and made a stop in Berlin for the night. Train pulled into the station, the guards get off the train, and they just left the prisoners handcuffed to the seats. Hundreds of prisoners just sitting there, probably wondering why the guards left them alone. The sun goes down, the searchlights turn on, and the air raid sirens start to sound. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Berlin, the capital of Nazi Germany, who was subjected to 363 air raids during World War II. Tonight's bombs are brought to you by the Royal Air Force Bomber Command. So if you're like me, again, you put yourself in these situations, and I just shake my head. I don't have the bandwidth to comprehend what it must be like to be handcuffed to a train in Berlin, getting bombed by your own side, hoping to hell the bombers, which you are one as well, continue to miss the area you are helpless to leave. Again, public service announcement. When you're losing your shit because someone doesn't know how to merge onto the highway, it could be worse. You could be kicking it on an Amtrak train waiting to see if you're going to get blown up. And when asked what was going through his head, Bob said, quote, you're praying they're going to miss again, end quote. And then he cracked himself up. He made himself laugh. And Bob was not the type to crack himself up. But I think he saw the perverse humor of the situation, right? As mentioned before, a bomber pilot hoping another bomber pilot on his own team doesn't do a good job. So the next morning, the train leaves Berlin and they make the trip to Barth. Now, there are a lot of guards when they arrive, and the prisoners are taken off the trains, and they're marched through the woods for about a mile, and they come to Stalag, Luft, Barth, Germany, 
North Compound 2. And as the new prisoners are led to the main gate, all the existing camp prisoners are out at the fence watching the new meat being brought in. Hey, where you from? What outfit you with? That's all Bob heard from everyone. That's all anyone wanted to know. And your hometown was everything back then, right? It was just, it was that connection to some normal life that you could share with someone while you were both in this hellish foreign land during a freaking world war. So coming up in part five, Bob goes to camp and we'll learn what the second best thing that could have ever happened to Bob was. I'd like to thank everyone very much for listening. I was on this side of the hill and I, I started up up the hill. And I shouldn't have, I should have started down. I started up and this little Austrian guy pops out from behind a tree or something. Cute little devil, perfect Austrian, which he had pictured. He had short pants on, boots, wide suspenders, a hat with a big long feather on it, long sleeve shirt, just like a perfect little whatever you want to call him. <laughs> Except he had a gun that was, must have been 10 feet long. It looked like an old flintlock, you know. He aimed a gun at me. Come here, come here. 